The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. follow as I read 1 Corinthians 16, 1-11. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you are also to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you credit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. This is God's word. Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of each of our hearts might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. This time of year, many of you, I suppose, are receiving support letter requests for those who are going out on short-term missions this summer. And when you receive a letter, you have to evaluate how well do you know this person. You have to decide, do you believe in what this person says he or she is being called to do. You have to determine how much of your money, or better, the money God has entrusted to you, that you will give to support this trip. This summer I'll be leading a team of 11 to London in the month of July. And I'm going there because I believe strongly in the work of our surge missionaries, uh, in the work that they're doing to reach South Asian background peoples, with the gospel. I've been thoroughly impressed by Stephen and Charity Jones, Matt and Jen Irvin over the years, by the letters they write, by the way they present themselves in personal visits, demonstrating zeal, faith, courage, transparency, humility, a deep God dependence, and obvious evidence of fruitfulness in their ministries. So, I want to go and see myself. It's our practice, and it's been our practice for years in Great Commission, to send our teams to go or serve alongside those people with whom we have great confidence. They have a strong calling in the Lord and have truly effective ministries. I've had the privilege of serving on our Great Commission committee for a number of years, 
And over, the, over these years, I've discerned that it can be quite of a challenge to determine how effective are our missionaries or mission teams or even missions sending agencies. We require all of our supported missionaries to give us an annual written report. It helps us stay in touch, to remain familiar with the nature of their ministries, to update our prayer, our prayer requests for them, to uh, modify our financial update for the coming budget year. And these reports also give us a paper trail by which we can evaluate and go back to find out how can we best encourage and support these missionaries and, on occasion, initiate a conversation to discuss whether or not we are still a good fit as a supporting ministry. I've also had the privilege in recent years to chair the committee of our presbytery that oversees our campus ministries called RUF that are located on Penn State and Norrisville campuses. And in these last three years, we've had three straight transitions of replacing ministers at Penn State, Norrisville, and launching a brand new international ministry at Penn State. And evaluating candidates is taxing. But it is worth the effort to get the best people to send them to reach a very hard group of people to reach, the American college student. So we introduce these ideas to ask the question, what makes an effective ministry? What does an effective minister look like? And what is the return on investment? What is the value of hiring a pastor, a ministry director, or even sending a short-term mission team? Well, I've been challenged by those questions over the years by many earnest believers who really want to know where their missions dollars are going and are they effective. And I'm in fact, I've grown to be grateful for those questions, and I pose them to you as well tonight, as I believe Paul raises some of these issues as we come to the end of this important letter. Because the reality in a fallen world is that there are too many ineffective ministries— It seems that there's oftentimes not enough funds to go around for the good ones. There are oftentimes not enough qualified ministers to meet the needs. In fact, reports from our seminaries indicate that there's a shortage and that we're not producing enough trained men to meet the needs we currently have. Sadly, our own presbytery last year had to depose two men who were no longer qualified for the ministry due to significant issues of sin. Their failures were costly, not just in terms of money, but in human capital, in terms of kingdom impact. And Paul knew all these types of problems and even more. But despite setbacks, despite the risks we take in ministry, I believe God calls us to entrust our ministry plans in the hands of the Lord, believing that he raises up what is necessary the necessary means to accomplish his kingdom work that he is pleased to do. So point one is that God raises up the funds needed for ministries that God is pleased to bless. Verse one, Paul mentions, he actually orders the Corinthians to take up a collection, and verse two indicates that it's to be done on a weekly basis. And he says that this was not only for them, he refers to the Galatian church who received the order as well. And you'll remember early in the series, that um, the Galatian church, the more legalistic-leaning early church, and the Corinthians, the more 
libertine-leaning church, were two of the earliest of Paul's letters. And here they received the same command regarding the weekly collection. Now, who is this collection for? Well, obviously it's for the Lord, but the Lord doesn't need our money. It's specifically for the saints. Well, who are the saints? Well, Paul goes on to indicate that they're for the saints in Jerusalem. Well, that raises a question. Why is, it, why is the daughter church sending money to help the mother church? I suppose we would be embarrassed if Westminster needed financial help from Proclamation, our most recent daughter church. But as we understand the history and the times, it's uh, pretty clear from scholars that at this time in Judea, there was a famine, there was an economic downturn, there might have been persecution affecting the Christian church. But even if it was not a relief-based collection, there still was a very legitimate collection for this one reason. Jerusalem was the hub. It was the mother church. It was the home, the host of most of the apostles and the teachers and those who were gifted and trained and equipped to train others, to send out more missionary church planters. So it would be like Westminster sending our funds to Westminster Seminary and Covenant Seminary, two institutions that we know and trust, who have been entrusted with the task of training up more uh, gifted and qualified men to serve as pastors and missionaries. So when are they to give? Well, Paul says the first day of the week is the believers gather for corporate worship. We understand that this is one of the foundational texts that indicates that Sunday is the Christian Sabbath. Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday. It is the resurrection day. It set the precedent for the weekly gathering of Christians very, very early in the uh, birth of the church. We would disagree with Seventh-day Adventists who insist on keeping the Jewish Sabbath. And I don't claim them to be heretics necessarily, but believe that they are in error. Well, notice how Paul says, not only are we give weekly, each one is to give as he may prosper, thus introducing the principle of proportional giving. And this is not a new idea. This is rooted deeply in the Old Testament practice of the tithe. And I've preached on this before, and Dr. Rogers preached along a series on uh, giving and stewardship to launch our stewardship campaign four years ago, so I'll only make a few brief comments that we understand from the Old Testament that faithful Jews were expected to give a tithe, a tenth of their annual increase for the support of the Levitical priesthood and the sacrificial system at the temple. And yet the, uh, the observant student will also note that there was another tithe that faithful Jews were expected to give where families were to store up a, for the thrice annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem uh, to make a trek for a week or better of worship and fellowship and feasting uh, in Jerusalem. Now, some may call this vacation money, uh, maybe better, better titled the Worship Celebration Fund. Sounds pretty good. Um, but there was also even a third tithe in Old Testament Israel, and it was not an annual tithe. It was given every three years for the support of widows and orphans and the disabled, and those in need. We might call this the benevolence fund. Well, this was the context, the ideas that Paul was working with as he is establishing the practice of giving in the New New Testament church. 
and he never does away with a tithe, and we would embrace this as understanding an ongoing application to the lives and practices of New Testament believers. Now, some may point out that Paul says nothing about giving for the pastor or the preacher there in Corinth, and we do know that Paul largely preached free of charge at his own expense. He supported his ministry largely uh, through his trade as a tent maker, uh, making tents that Jews would purchase on their way to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem for one of the annual feasts. And uh, we would, we would uh, reckon that at this time, less than two decades after the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, that Corinth probably didn't have what we would call a full-time pastor. They had elders. They probably depended upon the elders for teaching, probably also depended upon itinerant preachers coming through that they helped support. Um, And we would also understand uh, from chapter 9 of this letter that Paul, who had surrendered his rights to receive regular income from the churches, did not expect that. That was not to be the expectation for other pastors and regular preachers and teachers in the local church who had a a rightful hope of sharing in the congregation's crop uh, to reap the material things in return for a spiritual service. Paul, later in his letter to, in in 1 Timothy, in chapter 5, he repeats the same Deuteronomy reference and adds the principle that the worker deserves his wages, encouraging giving for the support of the full-time ministry workers. Well, ministry requires money. The Old Testament temple required substantial giving. You may recall how David refused to receive the threshing floor of Arana the Jebusite to lay the foundation of the temple free of charge, insisting that he would not make offerings to the Lord that cost him nothing. It cost money to hire ministry leaders. It requires money to send missionaries afar afield. I've been struck over the years, even just a few years ago, our campus ministers' annual budgets were closer to $100,000 a year. Now they're up near $150,000 a year. Health care costs and the rise in support costs are the main culprits there. And I would just add a few things for us to think about that The dramatic rise in health care costs are a real threat, threatening to stunt the growth of ministry and to perhaps even hinder uh, qualified men from entering into the ministry. It's something we should be greatly concerned about and prayerful about, even savvy as we consider how to equip uh, the body of Christ with faithful ministers. I would contend that that Jesus and Paul um, both needed money for their ministries. And we're not afraid to ask. There are uh, references in the New Testament, uh, particularly of women who gave and supported out of their means to support their work. These, they did not act as poor beggars. Um, and contrary to those who sometimes uphold this, this quasi-spiritual virtue that ministers should be poor and destitute, um, I'm very grateful that this church does not hold that view, that it more than amply supplies uh, for its ministers. Uh, there is a, is a calling here of God's people to, to give for the support of the ministry and the expansion and multiplication of that, of that work. We also know that since 2008, that fewer men are entering into our seminaries. 
it seems that the, it's becoming a harder sacrifice when greater financial opportunities lie elsewhere. I remember when I made my decision to leave IT consulting to go to seminary. I remember thinking uh, that I, I was concerned that if I stayed, continuing to receive high annual raises and all the perks that came along with it, I might get too comfortable and never leave. Uh, but God was faithful to lead us, and uh, though it took me many years uh, to start earning the same amount that I was earning when I had resigned from consulting, I'm very grateful, and, and I have no regrets. And the blessing of how God provides for his ministers has uh, been testified over and over in my own life and the lives of others. Another financial concern we should be thinking about is how the high levels of undergraduate debt is a major concern that may hinder many gifted uh, people with high aptitude for ministry from entering into ministry and mission vocations. Our Great Commission Committee is already seeking to address this issue with some of our more gifted young people, and we should all encourage those with a high aptitude for ministry uh, to keep their debt loads low as they go through the undergraduate years. Uh, and to receive godly counsel about financial planning for ministry. I'm very grateful for the godly counsel I received. I'm grateful for the frugal wife that God gave me to make sure that we paid off our undergraduate debts before we entered seminary, and we managed to leave seminary debt-free by the skin of our teeth. And uh, the Lord was faithful uh, to prepare us for a ministry call. So let me just say in closing on this first point that We're called to pray. Pray for the financial welfare of this church and of the the ministries that you care most about. Um, I charge you to commit yourself to regular, proportional, sacrificial giving on a weekly basis or on the basis of your paycheck, or if you're retired, to base your tithe based upon your withdrawings, your withdrawals, or perhaps your spending. And uh, for those who struggle, struggle to tithe uh, because of the excess of expenses, to, to consider how do you cut expenses or how do you increase uh, your income so that you can come to a place where you can tithe on a regular basis. May you heed the challenge from Malachi chapter 3, where God exhorts his people to be faithful to tithe. He says, test me and see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you. This is one of the few times we're exhorted to test the Lord, to cry out to him, to depend upon him, to trust him with our resources. And I pray for each of us that we would gain a true heart for giving, that we would remember the Lord Jesus Christ, who though he was rich for your sakes, he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. May we not hold on to our resources with Scrooge-like clenched fists, but may we open them gladly, gladly to see our worldly increase go to expand mansions in heaven. Well, second point is that God raises up opportunities for effective ministry, that he is pleased to expand. Well, Paul lays out his itinerary, his plans to visit the Corinthians by way of Macedonia. And uh, ministry plans are good necessary for churches, for missionaries, for short-term teams. And uh, 
equally as important with planning is the importance of flexibility. Notice how Paul qualifies his plans. He qualifies his plans at the end of verse 6, wherever I go, where he says, and perhaps at the beginning of verse 6, even at the end of verse 7, if the Lord permits. See, Paul has an agenda. He has plans, but he holds on to it loosely, open open to the Lord, steering his course in directions that he may not have foreseen. So we would be wise to make plans, but to hold them not too tightly, uh, but to perhaps adopt uh, the principle Semper Gumby, always flexible, especially on short-term trips or ministry opportunities, that we might meet, th- meet needs along the way and be open to the hindrances and the opportunities the Lord may lay in our path. Well, in verse 7, Paul makes his intention very clear that he is not just merely passing through Corinth. He intends to spend quality time with them. See, Paul has, he has some relational repair work to do with this troubled congregation. He wants to continue working out their issues and differences to provide them further teaching. He believes in the ministry of presence to help build up and affirm their leadership team, to tighten discipline, to help strengthen their shared bonds in Christ. And so I would argue that Paul is not so much efficiency-minded as effectiveness-minded. He seeks effective, long-range ministry. So I think sometimes we imagine Paul crisscrossing around the Mediterranean, planting churches left and right, barely even getting to know the people uh, that he's met. But I think a closer inspection of the New Testament indicates that he spent time with people. He knew their names, many of which are recorded in his letters. Paul invested in people, not just in projects. In many ways, Paul was following the likeness of Jesus Christ, who had a very intense three-year itinerant ministry, crisscrossing Galilee, and down to Judea and back again, spending time with people, reaching the masses, and yet investing himself in the few who would carry on his mission after he was gone. I believe that we are called to sometimes take time off, to spend quality time with people, perhaps give up a weekend to host, to go on a conference, to go on a retreat, to Perhaps take out a whole week or more to spend on a short-term mission trip. I charge you as we go into missions conference weekend to reach out to our missionaries, to take advantage of the many venues we offer to get to know them, to hear their stories, to bless them and love them, and be connected with them so that when they depart, you have a new guidance in how you pray for them. Well, Paul... It says in verse 8 that he, his intent was to stay at Ephesus. And in fact, he would stay there for the better part of two years for a wide, a wide door, an opportunity for effective work, effective ministry had opened to him. I love the word effective. In fact, the word effective is the first word in the title of my dissertation about effective long-range planning in churches. And Paul uses the same word in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. And it's the same word in the Greek in Hebrews 4.12 that the word of God is living and active or effective. 
God making it effective in our heart to transform us into the likeness of Christ. So how is it that we are to gauge effective ministries? Well, Jesus indicated that we are to know uh, his disciples by their fruit. And I think we could say that effective ministries uh, bear fruit of transformed lives. That effective ministers and effective missionaries can testify to quantity and quality stories like we just heard uh, this evening of people's lives being impacted by compassion and mercy and the power of the gospel. A wise counselor once asked a missionary, tell us one or two stories of people whom your ministry has impacted and why they are meaningful to you. A question like that opens up doors and an effective minister can just gush about people who the Lord has brought into his or her life uh, to share the fellowship of the gospel. Well, how do you know whether you have a great opportunity for ministry? Well, you should seek counsel, you should pray, you should weigh out options. But in the end, sometimes you don't really know whether or not a ministry opportunity is a great one until it's in hindsight. It takes a step of faith. We have to act on it. And we believe that only God can truly open up doors of opportunity. It's only God who can open up people's hearts to receive gospel message. And so our calling is to keep searching, to keep knocking, and to find where God is evidently at work to join him in the effort to bring people to Christ. See, we believe in a sovereign God who uses all of our decisions, all of our actions, ultimately for our good and for his glory. And God can even make our crooked choices straight again. Our aim is to be faithful, to trust him, to act upon the gifts and the opportunities that God has given to us. In truth, there are foolhardy missions that sometimes prove quite the opposite, bearing much fruit. And yes, there are others that prove to be just as foolhardy and disastrous as the wise counselors predicted that they would. Our own presbytery has seen successes and failures. We call men to serve. Many do well, and some don't. There's a place for wisdom and stewardship. There's also a place for faith, especially when our opportunities are beyond the scope of our own limited wisdom. Should we send a young person into the heart of the Muslim world notorious for violence and instability? Usually not. It's most often wise to heed State Department travel warnings. And yet, Jesus' mission in many ways seemed foolhardy. It was a death mission. Hit going right into the lion's mouth to face death. Paul likewise, Paul, Jesus and Paul were both were nearly hindered by their own disciples who tried to stand in their way from accomplishing their missions. And yet the greatest ministry impact ever comes mysteriously through the hand of God who leads his people to do a great work that only God can accomplish through them. And so, in the end, our third point is that God does raise up faithful ministers to carry out his kingdom mission, that which he is pleased to accomplish. So in the last two verses, Paul exhorts the church to put Timothy at ease when Timothy comes to visit, that he may have no reason to fear. And there's a parallel reference to fear in 2 Timothy, 
uh, that's caused many to suppose that Timothy may have had a timid disposition. He seemed to lack a, a bold or fearless personality, and yet he was still an effective worker who had Paul's confidence, who was able to take up large loads of responsibility, and tradition tells us he pastored the megachurch at Ephesus for many years. I remind you of Paul's letters to Timothy and Titus, which lay out the qualification for leaders that are primarily character-based. And those character qualities reflect things like faithfulness, reliability, respectability, steadfastness, and carrying out the gospel mission despite opposition. Paul in verse 9 already mentions that there are many adversaries. So gospel ministers must stand the ground against attack both within and outside the church. Well, finally, in verse 11, Paul confirms concerned that Timothy not be put down or despised, perhaps because of his youth or his timid disposition, or perhaps his ministry gifts did not have the razzle-dazzle that the gifted Corinthians had come to expect. Uh, so it seems that Paul was more concerned with faithful, deliberate ministry rather than great fanfare. And we believe that God does raise up gifted men to do mighty works of God when God chooses to do so, but for the most part uses ordinary men who are strong in faith and character, even if their gifts are not necessarily eye-popping. The dedication that I gave for my dissertation was to my wife and to my children with this added line, may the church of tomorrow stay on mission for our children's children. I am only 41 years of age, and yet I'm already growing concerned for the proper shepherding of my children and future grandchildren of upcoming generations. I, I have concerns for the church in America. I even have concerns for our own denomination of reaching beyond its own common demographic. I have concerns that there may not be enough ministers to meet the growing needs around us. I have concerns, like many of you, that our government may continue to restrict our free speech. I have concerns that financial pressures may make ministry harder, making it harder and harder for good, faithful men to enter into full-time gospel ministry. Well, against these concerns, and despite these anxieties that Paul shared as well, for the church of his own day. We believe in a faithful God who will bring about his kingdom work to completion, that he uses flawed people. He uses imperfect churches that God himself will raise up the necessary funds, that God himself will open up the doors of opportunity. He will equip his people. He will make them effective, carrying out this good work begun by the Lord Jesus Christ, and bring it to completion for our good and his glory. May we rest in this truth. And may we join God where he is working until the day of his return, when he will end our labors on earth, when he will usher us into that glorious labor of the new heavens and the new earth, where there will no longer be funding shortfalls, no more missionaries will be cut. There will no longer be need for missionaries. There will no longer be fractures and splits in churches, but our labor will be a pleasure and a joy 
It will increase a hundredfold, as Jesus says in his parables. May that day come when God will truly be in our midst and be glorified. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, that you have begun the good work through your Son, that his effective ministry continues on down through the ages, through the apostles, through disciples, through pastors and missionaries and teachers and faithful servants in your church. And we thank you for this church and its effective ministry and the privilege we have to proclaim the gospel to our people, to the people in the surrounding communities. We thank you for the work in Kenya and pray, O oh Lord, that the life-saving dialysis ministry would continue to grow, that you provide for its needs as well. Thank you for Dr. Mora and others who have joined him in this great work. And I pray that you would encourage us that as we depart from here, that we would be a people equipped for the good and perfect work you have prepared in advance for us to do. Amen.